It's go time. Huge news coming out of the NFL today that will have a huge impact on the Canadian Football League as well. Welcome everyone to Third Down Gamble. I'm Don Charbon along with Heath Graham. Pat Mooney is not available tonight and don't forget that he'll be back when he gets the chance. But it's a milestone for us as we hit our 200th episode. We thank all of our subscribers. We hope that you're enjoying the podcast as we continue to move forward. Yes, and thank you to our listeners who have toughed it out with us through 200 episodes, through an entire cancelled season, a pandemic, a shortened season. We, we picked a great time to start a podcast and we have persevered through 200 episodes. So thank you to everybody. We have listeners all over the world and we want to thank you for being a part of our show. Now, let's get to the stories at hand that are coming out of the NFL with over a thousand players being released today. Some of them will wind up back on rosters on other teams. Some will make practice rosters, but there are going to be a lot of players that are going to be coming available. Likely the biggest newsmaker from the Canadian perspective is Nathan Rourke. He has been released by the Jacksonville Jaguars. There is no indication from the team that he's going to be put on the practice roster so now he has to go through waivers and by waivers that means that the team with the worst record could claim him or similar to a draft you could see the rest of the 31 have a chance to pick him up off of waivers if he is still available that is the big question going forward and how does his availability now impact the BC Lions and the CFL for another question. That was big news. It didn't really come as a surprise with the way camp was going for the Jaguars. Nathan Rourke was phenomenal in his opportunities in the preseason games, made probably the play of the preseason where he eluded a couple of tacklers, scrambled and found a receiver for a touchdown. It sounds like from what we heard from Nathan Rourke, he was a little bit surprised by the lack of opportunity to compete. He said one of the main reasons he signed with Jacksonville was the promise that the number two quarterback position was open and he would have an opportunity to to compete for that. The coaching staff, when they made their 53-man roster decisions and cut him, basically said that the number two job was already taken and he was kind of auditioning for a, a backup or a third-string role. If he manages to clear waivers of the other 31 teams, he may still end up on Jacksonville's practice roster. However, I hope for his sake he gets an opportunity with another team. I was one of the few that felt that it wasn't a given that he was going to stick with the Jacksonville Jaguars, and I took a lot of heat for that. Having said that, it wasn't a mark against Nathan. He has all the determination, skill sets, and desire that you would want to see from a quarterback. The problem that he had is size. Now, where his brother, Curtis, is well over six feet tall, Nathan doesn't hit that same height. And in the NFL, they love their quarterbacks to be big and tall. That's not his fault. He may get picked up 
Somebody could take a flyer on him and give him a chance. But the problem for Rourke is that there are a lot of quarterbacks that are now available as of today's cutdown that will be looked at as well. And so the competition is huge for him to get another chance. In most cases, when players are waived, the team will determine for them, or at least give them an indication, where they're going to be. Uh, uh, in other words, it could be they want to assign them to the practice roster or they want to say, you're free to go wherever you want to be. Now, the Jacksonville Jaguars did not specifically state that they wanted to move Rourke to the practice roster. So that means he's available. He's out there. Whether or not he does land on another team, that remains to be seen. By the time you hear this podcast, that may already be determined. In the interim, and I've championed this a lot in the past, I think his home is in the CFL. And it's it's a question you have to understand for yourself. What is it that I want from football? Do I want the money or do I want to play? They would be one one possible landing spot is the New England Patriots have only one quarterback currently on their roster they cut two quarterbacks today so if there's a team looking for quarterbacks obviously it is the Patriots now whether Bill Belichick is somebody that's willing to take that gamble on a Canadian undersized quarterback we don't know it would be an interesting opportunity for him and if he does clear waivers of the other 31 do you think he lands back on the Jags practice roster or does he immediately start looking at opportunities to return to Canada and most likely with the BC Lions. BC Lions still have his rights until the end of this season. And if it comes to pass that Rourke comes back to the CFL, that's where his contract will be. And for the Lions, then they've got two veteran quarterbacks and they'd have to make some decisions about what they want to do. If they want to keep them both and Rourke, that'd be a lot of payroll. Or do they want to move someone along? And you'd have to know from Rourke pretty soon if he's coming back yeah, Vernon Adams Jr. is clearly struggling with a leg injury right now. He is still performing and, and still their starting quarterback, but he's hobbled and doesn't look like the Vernon Adams that we have seen in the past. So an opportunity for Nathan Rourke to come back in to Rick Campbell's organization and an offense that he's already familiar with and a receiving core that he worked so well with last year would be would be a great opportunity. So it's something to certainly keep an eye on over the next couple of days to see if he clears waivers and then to see what opportunities present themselves with the BC Lions. The money won't be the same, but it also won't be bad. With what he showed in the CFL last year, he would likely be signing a contract in that 500000 a year plus range and opportunities to market a Canadian star in the CFL would help boost that a little bit with some endorsements, especially if he's in one of the larger markets. Now it's not the same endorsement opportunities as he would have south of the border either, but there would be other money that any CFL team could find to help sweeten the deal for him. Nika Kalinich has also been cut. Dakota Shepley has been cut. There's a lot of Canadian talent that went down to the States to give it a try. Some have been there for a while and now are on waivers, some who went down in the offseason for the first time. Dakota Shepley is an interesting one to keep an eye on as well. Canadian offensive lineman with the ability to start in the CFL 
are a hot commodity as well. So I'm sure he is pursuing interests in the NFL to their full extent. But again, somebody that could be an impact player returning to Canada and could really bolster several offensive lines uh, across the country. It's going to be a fascinating couple of weeks because a lot of players, including American players who had been on CFL rosters before, may be becoming available and may be looking to return. And this will create a lot of motion, especially with the teams that are struggling right now, looking to bolster to make that run in for the playoff races that are certainly heating up. And some other American players having their first opportunity to come north of the border as well. You, you said there's a thousand players roughly that have been let loose by their teams today. The agents are going to be busy. The players that want to continue to pursue once those NFL interests have all been explored are going to look at leagues and those players are game ready now. What league is playing now? The CFL. And we're at that crunch of the season. We're getting into the Labor Day games this weekend. And famously, the saying goes that the CFL season starts after Labor Day. This is where teams are going to be looking at their current rosters, looking at those negotiation lists, looking at free agents, and seeing what kind of tweaks they can make for that playoff run. Let's move north of the border. I want to talk about the booth and its role in the football game. And specifically, this may get a little bit heavy, but it's a philosophical question that I have. And it may need some addressing at the league level because you have to sort of philosophically understand what the role the booth is supposed to play in a game. And specifically, I'm going to go back to games this week where the booth, I thought, maybe overstepped. Let's start with the game between Montreal and Winnipeg on Thursday night. Jamison Sheehan punts the ball and is contacted by Bryce Notry, who happens to brush past him but does make contact with him. Two officials on the spot decide nothing is warranted a flag. We go to commercial break, which is a built-in function of the 12, 9, 6, and 3-minute marks in a CFL game. Coming out of the break, we find out that there has been a flag thrown. The booth has intervened and called a penalty for contacting the kicker. I have a problem with that because that's a judgment call, and I didn't think that was under the jurisdiction of the booth in the first place. Moving ahead to the game between Hamilton and BC, British Columbia returner Terry Williams comes up the field, ball gets stripped of him, it falls down, the players pile in to recover it, while they're still struggling to find the football in the bottom of that melee, there's some discussion somewhere. We can see Justin McInnes talking to somebody on his headset, and suddenly they rule that the runner was down. Check that. Suddenly they rule that there was no immediate recovery by either team after the play had completed. As such, there was possession awarded to the BC Lions. My question is, nine times out of ten, they're going to let the thing play out. The booth would then get involved to see if there was indeed a fumble, and then it would be the up to the officials on field to determine at the bottom of that pile who had actually come up with possession. To come up with this notion that there was no immediate recovery, I find that odd because players had dived onto that football immediately after it was loosed. And a quick replay had shown that it was indeed a fumble, that the player was not down by contact prior. 
Let's move ahead to the game on Sunday between Edmonton and Ottawa. Dylan Mitchell is in the end zone. He's going for a reception. Ball goes by, and he's hit by Alonzo Adai. Now, it was a rough play hit, but it was not called on the field. Again, the booth intervenes and decides to call rough play. This is a subjective call. Why is the booth getting involved? In fact, the two other examples, well, especially the first the first example that we gave was also a subjective call. Those are the that's the responsibility of the officials on the field, the seven that are there. And I'm having a real problem with the booth getting involved in subjective calls. If it's hard and fast, stepped out of bounds, crossed the goal line, didn't maintain possession on a reception, the ball bounced out of bounds, any number of things like that. They can uh, offside. Was it a procedure or was it actually an offside? I'm fine with that. It's starting to feel like there's an eighth official on the field and we're just not informed of it as yet. There isn't a complete clarity and transparency on when the booth does get involved. And I, I agree with you on that one. Looking at the the contacting the kicker penalty against the Montreal Alouettes, watching on TV, I was fairly certain I saw a contact out of the corner of my eye and was a little bit surprised there was no flag on it, but didn't really think anything of it when it went to went to commercial break. I thought, okay, maybe maybe I, I thought I saw something that wasn't there. When they come back from commercial, they call the penalty, they show the replay. It was pretty clear that that foot wasn't down and it wasn't a matter of Jemison Sheehan milking the play. It was clearly contact. Missed on the field by the officials. The bigger concern was the Terry Williams fumble and the down by contact, immediate possession, all those sorts of things factor in. That is one that they need to get right. One of my biggest pet peeves is when the officials blow a play down too early. When it's a close play, you have to let it play out. There was there seemed to be some confusion as to, as you said, whether the booth was, was adding to it or not. These are the types of plays, though, that can change the outcome of the game very quickly, and it's important that the full process goes into play in order to correct any mistakes. If the booth is going to be seen as an eighth official, then designate them as such in the stat sheet and announce it. I just don't think it's right for the booth to get that involved in a football game. We have seven people on the field making judgment calls throughout the game. Let them do that. Say Justin McInnes needs help with something, then he can contact the booth and then when he makes the announcement to the crowd, after contacting the booth, we have determined that X, Y, or Z has happened, then that's fine too. I'm okay with that if they're reaching out for help. But I do not like the booth stepping in and saying that needed to be roughing, that needed to be pass interference, that needed to be called because the player was stopped in his motion. Let's go back to Kyle Loxley where... Quincy Mauger picks up a fumble, goes for a touchdown for BC against Edmonton early in the season. Somehow Kyle Oxley was determined by the booth to be stopped, even though on the field there was no whistle and there were two officials standing right there looking at the play. This is where I think the, the definitions for the booth have to be refined. They can't be 
pushing for judgment calls to be made by the booth. They have to step away from that. You've got mechanisms built in where players can be fined afterwards. I just don't like the idea of sub supplemental discipline during a timeout. And that's a great point when you're talking about the Kai Loxley fumble. The booth should not be intervening on when they think forward progress has stopped. It's got to be the play, the it's got to be the officials that are on the field at ground level that can see the feet moving, that can see the lines converging upon each other and where the ball is and, and who's still moving. That one, a, a booth review on something like that, you can think of a hundred plays a year that could potentially be overturned on forward progress and, and especially on a, a short yardage situation where it's just essentially everybody lunging at the same spot. I agree with your statement that it does put the on-field officials at a bit of a disadvantage. It, I, I believe it makes them nervous. It makes them second-guess themselves as well. One of the best things that I learned when I started refereeing different sports from a, a, a ref that was mentoring me was to be definitive in your actions. I, it was, I was refereeing basketball, and there was a close, close play at the sidelines, and he says the best thing you can do on that one, even if you're not 100% sure who the ball went off of before it went out of bounds, is to pick a direction and sell it, and they won't question you. The CFL on some of these judgment calls of whether it was a catch or not, down by contact, those happen at a split second, and you have to be decisive. Now you've got this eye in the sky looking over your shoulder, and now you're second guessing of, did is that the correct call? Did I see what I thought I saw? So it does bring the fear of error, I think, more to the forefront than the authority to make the call that you think you see. Second down. Week 12 is in the books, and we start on Thursday night with the Montreal Alouettes in Winnipeg. The Blue Bombers roll to a 47-17 win, largely in part to a big third quarter where two turnovers by the Alouettes turned into quick touchdowns for the Blue Bombers. If you were listening last week, I picked Winnipeg to win but not cover the spread. Was it a 31-point spread? The Blue Bombers were favored at home. It was definitely under 10. I just can't remember, but I don't think it was anything near the 30 that they won by. I think it was actually 7.5. It was a lower spread, and I thought it was going to be a much closer game than it was. Zach Kolaris certainly tried to keep it close in the first half by throwing two pick sixes and a third interception again if there's a team that can overcome that type of adversity and not panic it's the Winnipeg Blue Bombers we saw them recently spot the Edmonton Elks a 22 point lead including a pick six they come out not really firing on offense in this one resulting in 14 of 17 resulting in 14 of the 17 points scored by the Montreal Alouettes came on, on interception returns by that elephant, by that Alouettes defense. But Winnipeg did not panic, turned the tide in the second half and got three turnovers from Cody Fajardo and the Alouettes and turned that into a 30-point win. Zach Claris has an interesting stat. His very last throw against the Edmonton Elks was an interception that went for a touchdown. His very first throw of this game was an interception to Terrell Richards that went for a touchdown. So two consecutive passes that went for pick sixes 
TSN had an interesting stat for, put up an interesting stat line for Zach Kolaris. In his first 36 starts, he had 948 pass attempts, 22 interceptions, but no pick sixes. In his last five starts, 103 pass attempts, seven interceptions, four pick sixes. Anytime a team fails to protect the ball, it is a concern. The first interception in this one was clearly on Zach Caleros scrambling and trying to do too much. The second interception return by Marc-Antoine Decois was a fantastic defensive play on his part. He showed blitz, dropped back off the line into a spot where Caleros did not think he had a a play on the ball, and he made a, a very athletic move across the field to pick that one off for the interception Dequa had another interception near the goal line on a pass attempt to Kenny Lawler. And that one, again, was a little bit underthrown, but a pass that Claris thought was going to be a 50-50. It turned out to be double coverage because of the play of Dequa. All Zach Claris did after that was come out in the second half and throw touchdowns for the Bombers and turn things back the other way. So he has this uncanny ability to shake off those types of plays and keep going. It kind of harbors back to the old school late 80s, early 90s quarterbacks that just got out there and, and threw it. And and you throw a couple interceptions and you throw four touchdowns and it's a good night. If you look at the replay on Duquois' interception for the touchdown, he is actually shadowing Rashid Bailey as he's moving across the backside of the Winnipeg offensive line. And it just happens to take him to the spot where he gets in the way of the pass thrown by Zach Kolaris, makes a great grab to intercept it, and then gets on his horse and and makes it to the end zone for a quick score. It was sort of a fortune of circumstance rather than a fortune of design. You can't take anything away from what he did, but it was a play where Rashid Bailey's motion had actually brought Decois to that spot. And that was some good defensive play calling by the Montreal Alouettes because we know Winnipeg doesn't just rely on Brady Oliveira in the backfield. They are looking at those opportunities on a jet sweep to R- Rashid Bailey or to Nick Dembski. So to have Decois playing in a position where he is shadowing was the right move to make, and it resulted in, in not a run stop, but in an, in an interception, and he took full advantage of it. Claris, 16 of 24 for 240 yards, three interceptions and four touchdowns, although I think he could be credited with six touchdowns since two were taken back to the house by Montreal. Cody Fajardo, on the other hand, 14 to 25 for 137 and the big interception in the third quarter that really started the Winnipeg Blue Bombers going in the second half. One thing that really jumped out here, as I mentioned earlier, the Alouette's offense only generated three points. Winnipeg, after that back and forth, were trailing 17 to 14 and rattled off 33 straight points to seal that win. My question to you, though, is looking at the next tier, the Montreal Alouettes are now sitting at 6-4. and four. They've won six games this season. The four games they've lost have been to Toronto by 8, to BC by 16, and to Winnipeg by 14 and 30. Does that show us a little bit of where Montreal sits in that hierarchy right now, and what do they need to do to get past those top three teams? That's a good question. Montreal seems to be stuck in its own stratosphere right now. They have made moves already. Urge Malala, who dropped that third and one pass that was right in his hands, has been released by the club. 
Friday night, the Stampeders are in Toronto to take on the Argonauts, Calgary East versus Calgary West in some circles. What a great football game. It takes a Javon Leak punt return touchdown in the fourth quarter to decide the game for the Argonauts as they win 39-31. to But this is the type of game that you want to bottle and ship around the world because it was amazing. There was a huge crowd on hand because the CNA was going on as well. What a showcase for the CFL. This one was fantastic. It was really exciting. The Argonauts got some revenge after losing in Calgary a couple of weeks ago for their only loss of the season. Javon Leak now has four punt return touchdowns this season. A new special team star is born in Javon Leak. And after that touchdown, which put Toronto back into the lead, a couple of back-to-back sacks really took Calgary back out of it. Falaran Ormolade stepped up in that sequence and made a couple of big plays for the Argonauts. Now, Reggie Bagleton had a game maybe of the best of his career. Bagleton, nine receptions, 203 yards and two touchdowns. But the one that may bother him is the one that he had a chance at at the back of the Argonaut end zone. From the 20-yard line, Mayer throws it up. Bagleton gets his hands on it, but he is hit as he's going to ground and loses possession. Big play in the third quarter had the Stampeders scored. Again, it would have kept the pressure on the Argonauts. They settled for a field goal. Bagleton, though, you can't take away anything from that performance. He just was stellar. He did. A 200-yard receiving game is, is phenomenal. We don't see those very often in the CFL. Kenny Lawler with Winnipeg had one earlier this season. But you're right, this was Bagleton's best performance that I've seen with the Stampeders. He had a, a couple of great touchdown receptions, lots of yards after the catch. Toronto uses a deceptive play where they hand the ball off to A.J. Ouellette who then turns around, tosses it to Chad Kelly. Kelly then throws the ball down to DeVaris Daniels, who's open deep, and scores a touchdown. It was just that kind of night where anything could happen, and it did. And i got to give a a huge shout-out to Titus Wall, who, for the Stampeders, never gave up on any play out there. And in fact, he almost caught Javon Leak on that touchdown punt return that Javon Leak had. This was the kind of performance that we were hoping to see from Jake Mayer as he became the anointed number one quarterback for the Calgary Stampeders. He threw for 387 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions. So a a great night for him. He did take 42 pass attempts as well. So they they were very throw happy, the Calgary Stampeders. Chad Kelly, again, a solid night, 20 for 31, 361 yards. So both quarterbacks comfortably over 300 yards, 800 plus yards of total offense. This one was a very entertaining game. It's hard to believe that there was no point scored in the fourth quarter with all of that action. But as I said, that Toronto defense stepped up with the game on the line and made the difference when they had to. I, I just want to add to that the, the CNA, the, the CNE experience and getting the, the fans into the stadium is a great initiative that the Toronto Argonauts put on every year as well. So essentially your admission to the CNE can include a ticket to this football game and it's a a great opportunity to get families engaged and uh, some people that maybe don't generally head down to BMO field for football regularly are there for the CNE and it's an opportunity to promote the game and to to bring new fans to it. We move to the left or west coast and Hamilton Tiger Cats were in Vancouver to take on the Lions heavy underdogs and yet who are these Tiger Cats? They go in dominate and win the game going away over the BC Lions, 30-13. to 13. 
Taylor Powell has a big night, and my apologies to Taylor. I called him Logan. I called him Logan twice last week. Taylor Powell, 18 of 23 for 222 and a touchdown. Big story, James Butler, 21 carries for 118 yards. It was a very solid performance all around. We're seeing a little bit of Scott Milanovic taking control of the offense and working with the young quarterback, Taylor Powell, who finally got another touchdown pass after going one for one on his first CFL attempt and then having a couple of games where he failed to find the end zone. Brought it back around in this one. Two weeks in now with Milanovic helping out as the offensive coordinator, and we're starting to see some things turn around a little bit for the Ticats. On the flip side, Vernon Adams Jr. playing on one leg, 26 of 40, 326 yards, a touchdown and an interception. What else could he do? This man has so much heart. He has, I think he's close to 800 yards or maybe even over 800, 800 yards passing in these last two games. So a real gutsy performance for him. Uncharacteristic loss for the BC Lions. It's a game, especially at home, that you expect them to win. This is just another one of those games that shows you any given week anything can happen in the CFL. We look so far at the, those kind of top three teams. Toronto got beat pretty soundly by Calgary in Calgary. BC gets beat by Hamilton. We saw the crumback in Ottawa where they score two late touchdowns to beat the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. It is possible, and that's why you play the games. Take a little note of this. When Taylor Powell throws a touchdown pass, the Ticats are undefeated this year. Not a huge body of work to, to work from right now, but if he can keep that stat and that streak going, it's going to bode well for the Tiger Cats down the stretch. Moving to Sunday night and the big game in Edmonton where the Ottawa Red Blacks are in town and lose 30-20 to 20 to the Edmonton Elks. Significant because it's a thank goodness moment for the Edmonton faithful as the Elks finally win a home game after 1,415 days, 22 home games in a row. This was a long time coming and I'm sure there was a lot of relief in the stands as well as along the sideline. That makes two wins in a row for the Elks. And as you recall on this podcast, we did sort of hypostulate that given the way the schedule is working out, they may be in the mix in the playoffs, even as a crossover. It's hard to believe, but you look at the Labor Day matchups coming up. If Edmonton goes 2-0 and against Calgary in the Labor Day game and the rematch, they will leapfrog them in the standings. With the, with the awful start that the Elks got off to this season, it's, it's hard to imagine. And realistically, with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders sitting at 5-5, five and five, they need some results against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in these next two weeks, or the teams below them, if one of them manages to sweep those games, essentially gets right back nipping at their heels. Ottawa did try to make a game of it, outscoring the Elks 12-3 in the fourth quarter, but it just wasn't enough. Dustin Crum... Goes 17 of 26 for 172 yards. Meanwhile, the unbelievable stat line for Trey Ford, 15 of 18 for 317 and one touchdown. That was a very efficient night for Trey Ford. 300 plus yards on 15 completions is a super efficient night. And I'm with you on that one. I question Chris Jones. Was Trey Ford truly not ready coming out of camp? Or was Chris Jones just too committed to Taylor Cornelius as his number one guy? All we've seen from Trey Ford since he's gotten the opportunity to get on the field is he's protecting the ball well, he's scrambling when he needs to, and he is leading this offense. 
I was asked by a fan of the show whether or not Chris Jones had maybe missed the boat a little bit by not starting Trey Ford earlier in the season. It's a bit of a unique situation where the Elks have the GM and the head coach as the same person. And when you think of it, Chris Jones signed Taylor Cornelius to a decent-sized contract to be his starting quarterback. So there may be a little bit of pride that he wanted to make sure that he had made the right decision. Now that he has made the switch, Trey Ford is starting to show and that... not to, we're not going to sugarcoat this. Chris Jones had some very harsh criticism of Trey Ford early in the season, essentially telling the media and anybody that was listening that Trey Ford came into camp not ready to play. His hand got forced by the struggles and the losing streak and the continued pressure to make something happen. Now that it has, you have to look at that. And and I think Chris Jones needs to own up to it and admit that maybe he was a little bit hesitant to get Trey Ford into the starting position because he has performed so far. Now, things can change quickly. There can be an off week coming up. We see that Dustin Crum as well. After the, the hot start, he's cooled off a little bit. But that Edmonton offense is now using some of those weapons that we were expecting to see earlier on. Eugene Lewis... Only had three receptions, but it was for 112 yards and a touchdown. A phenomenal night for him. Manny Arsenault just continues to play solidly. Targeted three times, three receptions, 42 yards. Just a really nice night for that offense for the Edmonton Elks. A liability is starting to show up for the Ottawa Red Blacks defense, and that is the deep ball. They are struggling to stop teams from completing long passes. Case in point, Trey Ford rolls to his left, signals to Eugene Lewis to come back towards the ball. He throws it up. It's jump ball. Lewis wins it and goes 66 yards for a touchdown in the final minute of the first half. You cannot have that happen if you're a defense. You've got to be more aware of the situation and not allow that. This is something that the Red Blacks are going to have to correct. And that Ottawa Red Black secondary we thought was going to be a strength of this team going into this season as well. And they are getting they are getting exposed a little bit, something that they are going to have to crack down on. Again, it was really, really happy for those Elks fans to and players to finally see that streak ended. I, I thought personally that the Gatorade shower of Chris Jones was a bit much for a 2-9 team, but I understand the excitement and a two-game win streak for the Elks is, is a huge shift in momentum. So a lot of confidence for them going into these Labor Day games with the Calgary Stampeders. Let's give a shout-out to the Elks fans that were in the stands for this one. Nearly 24,000 attended this football game. That's amazing given that there was a 22-game home losing streak. They, they need to be commended for hanging in. And I don't know of many franchises in North America that would support their team through this much misery at home. Having erased it now and they are on a winning streak, they may be part of a conversation in the playoffs very soon. And if they get some home wins. Third down. Labor Day weekend coming up in the Canadian Football League. And it's the turn towards fall in the playoff races. Opening the contest is BC at Montreal on Friday night. The Lions come in at three and a half point favorites. Neither team had a great showing last week. It's going to be a redemption game for both of them. I like the Lions in this one. I think the struggles of that Montreal Alouettes offense show that they have a lot of improvement to make. BC, despite losing that game, still had well over 300 yards offense. 
I'm going to take the Lions in this one going into Montreal. Yes, it is a road game. Yes, Montreal is a tough place to play, but I think the Lions have the edge and that they will cover the spread in this one. Is the betting line saying to the Alouettes that because you haven't beaten one of the top three teams above you, that you don't deserve to be home favorites? Alouettes at home, I'm liking their chances, especially given that Vernon Adams Jr. is limping going into this game. Alouettes have a stout defense. I'm picking the Alouettes to upset this one. Let's jump ahead to Sunday, where the Rough Riders host the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and the Labor Day Sunday Classic at Mosaic Stadium. The Bombers come into the game at 7.5 point favorites. Now granted, they have won the last few in Regina. Is this still a fair assessment given that these games tend to be very close? In fact, last year, Winnipeg won on a last play field goal. I don't think it is. Uh, From what we traditionally see on Labor Day, it doesn't matter the records going into this game. It doesn't matter the starting quarterbacks. I like the Rough Riders on the upset on this one to at least beat the spread. And I would not be surprised if they pull off the home win. Winnipeg, to win this one, need to cut down on the mistakes. We've seen uncharacteristic mistakes from them. Fortunately, they have the weapons on offense to recover, but it's eventually going to come back and bite them. And that hostile environment at Mosaic Field in Regina is going to be a place where it's going to be a tough one. So I'm taking the riders to to beat the spread in this one. Jake Dolagala will be the starting quarterback for the Rough Riders. It's going to be a big crowd. It's going to be a loud crowd. I'm just not really thrilled with the Bombers getting seven and a half points in a circumstance such as this. These games tend to be very close for the most part. Also remember that the Rough Riders are coming off a bye, and we know that teams coming off a bye have a tremendous winning record. I don't think the Bombers will cover by that much. Both teams are going to be pretty well rested in this one. As you mentioned, the Riders had the bye. The Bombers played last Thursday, so it's going to be a 10-day break for them. Fatigue shouldn't be a factor. I'm expecting a high-energy game, and it should be a lot of fun. Monday, the early game. Toronto's in Hamilton to take on the Tiger Cats. Toronto 8.5-point favorites going into this game, and I have the same problem with this game. Hamilton traditionally plays Toronto very tough in the Labor Day Monday game. I don't like this spread. Yeah, I have to think that Hamilton beats the spread. 8.5 points. They're coming off their best performance of the season. Taylor Powell showing a lot more comfort as the quarterback. That being said, Toronto could put up a 50 on them. We, It wouldn't be that surprising to see Chad Kelly and that offense go off. Traditionally, these Labor Day games, though, are, are a lot closer than that. So I, I like the Tiger Cats to beat the spread. Hamilton gave up over 400 yards against the BC Lions and still won. I don't know that they can do that against the Toronto Argonauts because Chad Kelly can slice and dice and find the deep routes with the best of them. The higher this score goes, the worse it gets for the Hamilton Tiger Cats because their offense doesn't match up. It's going to have to be the Hamilton defense, especially their secondary, against the Toronto Argonauts offense. And if the Hamilton secondary can hold up, then maybe Taylor Powell can sneak a touchdown in and the Ticats can make a real game of it. Final game of the Labor Day set on Monday. It's the Battle of Alberta as the Edmonton Elks head down south the Highway 2 to take on the Calgary Stampeders at McMahon Stadium. Will be a raucous crowd there. The Stampeders are favored by five and a half points. The Stampeders are kind of like the Ottawa Red Blacks where the last three minutes it seems like the game deserts them. 
Stamps are coming in on a two-game losing streak. The Edmonton Elks are coming on a two-game winning streak. Where are you on this? Five and a half point spread isn't showing a lot of respect to the rejuvenated Edmonton Elks. That being said, I like what I saw from Jake Mayer in the last game. They didn't get the win, but he put up a lot of yards. Reggie Bagleton had his best game of the season and probably his best game as a Stampeder. I am going to take the Stampeders in this one to get the home win and to cover the spread. This may come as a bit of a surprise to people, but Jake Mayer leads the league in passing yardage. Now, Trey Ford is coming onto the scene and he is looking good. He's the type of quarterback, as is Jake Mayer, that it seems that when they get a chance to ad lib and roll and throw, that's when things happen. Edmonton is probably going to give Calgary everything they can handle. I think the Stampeders can win. I just don't believe they can cover. You're picking a lot of close games here for Labor Day weekend. And traditionally, that can be the case. It's either, there don't seem to be a lot of 8 to 10 point wins on Labor Day. It's either a a 1 or 2 point game or a blowout. We criticized Jake Mayer and the Stampeders offense for not pushing the ball down the field a lot earlier this season. He completes 17 passes for 170, 180 yards sometimes even less than that. This last game was that opportunity, as you said, they opened the playbook, they went deep, they pushed it downfield, and they had some success. So that is a sign to me that maybe the conservative play calling is off and they realize that in order to be successful, they're going to have to take some chances. Given what we saw from these two quarterbacks in their last outings, this could be a wild one and this could be a real classic. This one can potentially be a classic. Trey Ford has been magical since taking over that number one job as well. So I'm expecting a high scoring game in this one. I I don't think it's going to be a 17-13 defensive battle. It's going to be in the 30s and 40s on each side of the ball. For listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble Podcast. Audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by. Canadian Football League player and game statistics, for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.